Well, hey, good morning. Good morning. Hey, I do want to uh, thank you all for your uh, outpouring of love uh, for me in the last week through those uh, tribute uh, videos you did for my uh, birthday. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you. And and if you didn't get to do one of those, you're dead to me. No. But I am receiving gifts uh, through the end of the month. Just kidding. I'll receive gifts next month as well. So, hey, today we're going to look at a really familiar passage uh, for all of us, okay? This is a, I, I would think that between 1 Corinthians 13 and Psalm 23, like they go back and forth between the first and second most recognizable passages, chapters in the entire Bible. And so you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, Of course, this is called the love chapter. And as you recall last week, uh, in last week's sermon, we dealt with how Paul uh, began to answer this question that he'd received from the church of Corinth regarding the use, the proper use of the gifts of the Spirit. And then, like right when he's ready to start kind of unpacking after he answers chapter in chapter 12 right when he starts to kind of unpack the practical applications uh, for this teaching on spiritual gifts he just stops abruptly and then he tells the church hey guys man I have a lot more to say about this topic but I've been asked to do a wedding in Thessalonica and it's next weekend And so I thought I would just kind of lighten the mood and share with you a really sweet poem about love that I wrote for that occasion. Okay, I mean, in fact, I think it's a keeper. I would not be surprised if newlyweds are still reading this to each other in, I don't know, like 2,000 years. I mean, does Paul say that? Of course not. Like, of course not. This chapter, chapter 13, is all about spiritual gifts, the right use of spiritual gifts. Like chapters 12, 13, and 14 are all about spiritual gifts. In chapter 12, Paul gives a general teaching about the gifts of the Spirit, while in chapter 14, he gives specific applications of the way these are supposed to be used in corporate worship. And right in the middle of these chapters, he addresses the motivation for the using of the spiritual gifts. Because the Corinthian church had become loveless in their application of spiritual gifts. So Paul basically says, listen, spiritual gifts are awesome. Like you don't read anything in all three of these chapters where Paul is slamming on spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are not the problem. And so he says, listen, the gifts of the Spirit are awesome, but there is a more excellent way. And with those words, he introduces the chapter. In fact, he says, earnestly desire the higher gifts. Like pray for, ask God for those gifts that are a greater blessing to the church as a whole. And I will show you a more excellent way. And then, of course, he writes the love chapter. And I don't know if you remember a couple weeks ago when Pastor Trey preached right beforehand, like during the beginning of the service, he had everybody kind of move to the center and move toward the front and sit close to each other. It was really irritating, wasn't it? Wasn't that irritating? 
Like I thought this week I would one-up that by saying, why don't we all just squeeze in together just in the center section, and you know what? Let's hold hands. Let's just hold hands. And as I read chapter 13, I just want you to look lovingly and deeply into the eyes of the person next to you. Like I thought about doing that. I mean, but I mean, that would be normal, right? I mean, that's not weird. I'm not weird. You're weird. Like that's not weird, is it? Of course, I'm not going to make you do that, but I do want us to think about this passage in this way as like kind of like with our communion last week. When we did communion last week, I told you, you know what? The way we treat the church is the way we treat Jesus. And so what I would like you to do is as you come up to take the elements, I want you to examine your own heart. And if there is somebody in our church, a believer that you're not in a right relationship with, Then obey the words of Jesus. Leave your offering and first go and be reconciled with your brother if that's at all possible and then come back and make your offering. So in the same way, what I would like to ask this week is as I read this passage, I want you to ask this question of yourself. Is there anyone in this church, maybe even in this room, that I refuse to move toward in love. Like, is there anyone in this church, anyone in this room that I refuse to move toward in love, the kind of love that Paul defines here? And if there's somebody that you're at odds with, you might be thinking the pushback back may be, but you know, hey, they're not practicing this stuff. Why should I practice this stuff? Like, why do I have to one be the one that makes everything right? Like, they're the one who offended me. Like, this isn't fair. Like, I'm not the one in the wrong here, but you need to understand, if you won't practice this, if you won't move toward other believers in love, you are in the wrong. Like, you are the problem. You need to understand that. Like, one of you in this situation has to take the lead in being obedient to Jesus. Why not you? Like, why wouldn't you say, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to be the one who leads out in forgiveness and grace. And so chapter 13 is the thematic center of first Corinthians. And in it, Paul kind of contrasts what love is supposed to look like with what he's been seeing in the Corinthian church, like this dysfunctional church. And if you like me grew up in a dysfunctional family, like you probably grew up not knowing what normal is supposed to look like. Like, that's just a, a trait of people who grow up in dysfunctional ha- homes. Like, I often, like, with my friends, with girls I would date, I would be like, is that normal? Like, what I just said? Like, is that normal? Like, what is love when you grow up in a loveless environment? And so Paul answers the church by giving them this word, agape. Like, the, the, the love that is a commitment of the will. A love that is founded in the character of God. A love that seeks the highest good of another person regardless of the cost. And I love how Dr. Tony, Tony Evans defines this. He calls it, he says this, uh, he says, biblical love is the decision to compassionately, righteously, and sacrificially seek the well-being of another. And I'm going to leave it up here because I'd like, I'd like y'all to write this down. Biblical love is the decision, and so it's not merely a feeling, right? Because feelings come and go. 
But this is a commitment of your person to that person. It's a decision to compassionately, that means out of concern for the other person, righteously, based on God's standards, not the world's standards, and sacrificially, like that means giving of yourself to meet their need, seek the well-being of another. Like I said, this is a, this is love as a commitment of your will. Like God commands us to love. And you may think, well, how can God command our feelings? Well, He's commanding our choices. He's commanding our will and the feelings will follow. So with that is the definition. Let's look at this love chapter. In verse 1, Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Like we'll see in chapter 14 that the spiritual gift of speaking in tongues was front and center in the uh, controversy about gifts of the Spirit there in the church of Corinth. In fact, they had elevated speaking in tongues to be the sign of spiritual maturity. Like if you spoke in tongues, man, you had it going on. If you didn't speak in tongues, what's wrong with you? But remember, we saw this last week, your gifting is never a sign of your spiritual maturity. Like your gifting is not a sign of your spiritual maturity. Your gifting is a sign of the Spirit's sovereignty. Like the Spirit of God chooses who He will give these gifts to. Now, on the other hand, your love for others actually is a sign of your spiritual maturity. It's the fruit of the Spirit, the chief one mentioned, the first in the list. So without love, all of your speaking in tongues might as well be me standing up here with two old metal trash can lids and just banging them together. Like you make a loud noise, but it means absolutely nothing. Verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Note the repetition of the word all there. Basically, he's saying, listen, if I had it all, now no one has it all, no one has all the gifts, But even if I did, like even if I had all knowledge, all wisdom, all faith without love, I am nothing. Verse 3, if I give away all I have, if I deliver my body to be burned as a martyr, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Even if I give everything away, even if I lay down my life for the church without love, My sacrifice amounts to nothing. Without love, your most eloquent speech, your most insightful knowledge, your most sacrificial acts are worthless. Here's how you can remember it. Everything minus love equals nothing. Everything minus love equals nothing. I mean, you may may be somebody with five different like prominent spiritual gifts. You may have been a believer for 30 years. You may be in a leadership position within the church. Without love, it equals nothing. 
Eugene Peterson puts it this way, no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I am bankrupt without love. You see, without love, we completely miss the point, right? Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, and he tells him that the, the actual goal of teaching is to stir up in people's lives love for God and love for one another. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Like love equals life change. And so you could be gaining knowledge, learning new things, new theological terms, but without love, it's nothing. I mean, come on, love's the greatest commandment, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love is also the measure of whether you're a true disciple of Christ. If you love one another. So you need to understand that the church is not a stage for you to display your gifting. It's a family where you display your affection. It's not a stage for you to display your gifting. Hey, look what I can do. Look how talented, look how gifted. Look what I can bring to the table. Look what I add to the mix that is Hutto Bible Church. No. Guys, the church is a family. Like we come together and display our affection for one another. Certainly by using our gifts, but also by putting the fruit of the Spirit on display. How you treat your church is how you treat Jesus. So what is love? Like I thought this week of that 1984 hit by Foreigner. I want to know what love is. I want you to show me. And in this passage, Paul says, okay. Like I'll show you. I'll show you what love looks like. In fact, here are 15 qualities of love. Eight negative and Seven positive, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Like you got to wonder, I mean, how this became the go-to passage to read during a wedding when it's speaking really about the application is about spiritual gifts, but it's really clear, right? Like the thought that love never ends, that there's something that will never fail you, There's something that will never give up on you. There's something that will endure forever through the ages of your life, through the changing of your personality, the changing of your body. I mean, that is the primary hope of any couple on their wedding day. Like That's what they're hoping for. That's what they're praying for. Nobody stands at the altar before God and everybody and pledges themselves to somebody because they want to be alone. No. 
And so it became the go-to passage, but these beautiful and very familiar words are actually intended to help the church in their use of spiritual gifts to do so wisely. And so Paul basically says, listen, we don't want to elevate prophecy over patience. Like we don't want to elevate healing over hope or speaking in tongues over speaking in love. Like this is what love looks like. I mean, compare it with today's most profound definition of love. Here it is. Today we learn in our culture that love is love. Love is love. You see it on signs. You see it on window stickers. Love is love. You just want to say, did you come up with that definition all by yourself? Right? You know you don't use the actual word in the definition. Like if I ask you, hey, what is a chicken? A chicken is a chicken. A chicken is a chicken is a chicken. That tells me nothing. When you say love is love, it tells me nothing about the quality of love, about the substance of love. But Paul here gives us a profound definition, and it's interesting that he goes in the same pattern in this passage that he does in an earlier passage, right? Like his teaching on spiritual gifts matches perfectly with his teaching on food sacrificed to idols. Like in both of these sections of Scripture that are three chapters each, in both sections, the beginning chapter addresses the issue, eating food sacrificed to idols or, you know, uh, the use of spiritual gifts. It addresses them generally and theologically. That's chapter 8 and chapter 12. And both finish with a chapter that makes specific applications to the problems of these issues in that local church. That's chapter 10 and chapter 14. And sitting between these chapters is a focus on the heart of the Christian. And they say the exact same thing. Our love for one another is more important than our freedom to eat whatever we want to eat, chapter 9, or use the gifts however we want to use them, chapter 13. And so if you've been following along in this series and you read some of the negative examples of love in chapter 13, you've seen these before. Like they've been played out in the life of the Corinthian church. Love does not envy. Well, chapter 3, verse 3 says that the fellowship in Corinth was marked by envy, by jealousy and strife. Love does not boast. In chapter 4, verse 7, we read, listen, Paul says, hey, what do you have that you haven't been given as a gift? What do you have that you haven't received? And if you didn't receive it, like you did receive it, why are you boasting as if you didn't? Love is not arrogant, and yet we read throughout this letter to uh, this Corinthian church that their whole fellowship was marked with arrogance. Love is not rude. And yet the church in Corinth tolerated some of the most vile and disgraceful behavior of any church in the New Testament. Love does not insist on its own way. And yet that's the whole thing going on with the gifts of the Spirit and with food sacrificed to idols. In fact, they had a model, a motto as a church for doing things their own way. All things are lawful 
for me. I can do, I can do whatever I want to do. I have the freedom to do whatever the heck I want to do. So how about you guys? Like when you read this section of this chapter, how do you measure up? Like do people that you, like maybe even in your own, your own family, do they know that you love them? Like is it something that they can see? Not just in your words, but in your actions. Like do people in your church, in this room, know that you love them? Like is it more than just a feeling? Is the display of your love toward other believers in this church marked by patience? Like, are you a patient Christian? Or is it marked by frustration? You can test that afterwards when you are trying to get out of the parking lot, right? (laughs) Like, does your love show itself to other believers in kindness? Like, do you move toward each other with acts of kindness? Does it believe the best about people? Hope the best about other believers? Like how are you right now showing love to new people in our church? People who aren't connected yet. How are you showing love to those who are not in your friend group or your small group or in your generation or part of your race? How are you showing love to the weirdos in our church? Right? I mean, every church has has a few weirdos, right? If you don't recognize the weirdos, it's because you are the weirdo, right? You're the one who's odd for God. Like, do you do you gravitate toward these people to show them love? Does your love fade in and fade out? Is it fickle? Is it hot and cold? Is your love tied to the responses of others? You love them if they show you love, if they reciprocate. Paul goes on, verse 8, he says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. You see, love never runs down and it never runs out. It never fades. It never loses hope. That's the permanence of love. And he contrasts that with the temporary nature of some of the gifts of the Spirit that they had become so enamored with. Like prophecy. He said prophecy will pass away. Like something will render all prophecy obsolete. And it's because all the prophecies has been, have been fulfilled. Tongues will cease. Like one day, the very experience in this church that they use to elevate themselves above other believers will just end. It'll be done. And knowledge, as in a word of knowledge, will pass away. These gifts are temporary, and they're not just temporary. They're also incomplete. Like prophecy and knowledge are in part Like we prophesy in part, we have knowledge in part. Like even the prophets of old did not have the full picture of what God was going to do. He just showed them a little slither. Now when Paul refers to the coming of the perfect, he says, for we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. 
he is most likely talking about the return of Jesus. Like there are some people who would take this to say, okay, the perfect that he's talking about is the completion of the New Testament or the closing of the canon of Scripture. But that really does not fit the, the passage and what the, the argument that he's making here. Like the perfect that he's talking about is Jesus himself. When Jesus comes, these other gifts, these other signs, they will become completely unnecessary. Why? Because when Jesus comes, I mean, why would you need additional knowledge, words of knowledge, when the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea? When Jesus returns and set up his kingdom, these gifts will not be needed like stars fading into the background at the rising of the sun. So will these gifts be when Jesus returns. So love should take the priority over all these spiritual gifts because it's permanent. And it will outlive all the gifts that the Corinthians are so psyched about that they're making such a big deal about. And so Paul says, verse 11, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. Like yesterday, I got to spend the morning and early afternoon with my two oldest grandkids. We went to the pool and it was so fun. It's so fun just talking to my grandkids and having like a conversation with this four-year-old, like telling me things, this two-year-old telling me things. It's just so cool. Baby talk is cool when it comes from actual babies, right? Baby talk is not cool when it comes from grown-ups. Are you a baby talker? The kind of baby talk that Paul is talking about, here's, I think, a good test is, does your speech build up other people or does it tear down? Does your speech build up other believers, build up the body of Christ, or does it tear it down? Here's another test. Does your speech bring life or does it bring death? Now we're told in Scripture, in the book of Proverbs, that life and death are in the power of the tongue. And so are you speaking life words? Like in your marriage? To your children? To people within this church? To folks in your small group? Are you speaking death words? Here's another test. Does your speech unite people or divide them? Does it unite people or does it divide them? And here's another test. Does your speech stop gossip in its tracks or does it spread it like wildfire? If you failed any of those tests, you're a baby talker. You may have been a believer for 40 years, You may be a leader in uh, your small group or in this church, or you may have been an elder in the past. You may be somebody who has all kinds of gifts that you're using to serve people. But if your words unite, I mean divide instead of unite, if they tear down instead of build up, if they bring death instead of life, if they spread gossip instead of stopping it, 
you're a baby talker. In fact, here's something we should all kind of write down and think about is this. If your spiritual gift is critiquing everyone else's spiritual gifts, you don't have a spiritual gift. You have a spiritual problem. And church, you need to understand that. Like if you think that you have reached a position where you can sit in judgment on other people and evaluate whether they're, you know, as mature as you or whatever. Like if you think that your spiritual gift is criticism, like having a critical spirit, like if that's who you think you are, you kind of sit above the rest. I mean, that's the Corinthian problem. That's exactly what's going on in the church here. So if your spiritual gift is critiquing everyone else's spiritual gifts, you don't have a spiritual gift. You have a spiritual problem. You're a baby talker, and it's time to grow up. Paul goes on to say, verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. Like the word dimly there in the Greek is the English word that we have from which we get the word enigma. Like something that's kind of hard to understand, hard to evaluate. You kind of see it, but you're not quite. It's like a you know, Christopher Nolan movie like Tenet or Inception, right? You're like, I think I understood that movie. And then you watch it again and you think, well, maybe not, right? Like back in the day where this is written, mirrors were made of burnished bronze and they were poor reflectors of reality. So you'd look in the mirror and know you look something like that, but not quite. But there's going to come a day when you will know fully, even as you are fully known. Chuck Swindoll puts it this way, when we see the Savior face to face, all of our question marks will be changed to exclamation points. Now we know in part, but then we will know fully. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is Love. His implication is is really clear. Stop obsessing over spiritual gifts. Stop dividing over spiritual gifts that will ultimately vanish. Instead, lean into love for one another. Lean into faith and hope and love. As we pursue the gifts of the Spirit, let them be governed by the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, that's where love originates. And in closing, let me just say, I, I think I think there's a, one additional reason why we tend to make 1 Corinthians 13 our go-to wedding passage. One, one additional reason we kind of relegate this to the pastor up front reading as a couple is about to take their vows. And I think it's because it keeps us from having to apply like these principles as broad as they're intended to be applied. I mean, if I can make this just about my wife, or you make this just about your husband, it kind of limits the scope of our failures to just one person instead of the countless relationships we have in the church. 
But understand, like I said, the church is not a stage for you to put your gifting on display. It's a family. Like We're a family. And what you should be displaying is your affection for other believers. And so are you doing that? You might even say, like, you know, even on my best day, I've never loved anybody like this. Like, even on my wedding night, I did not measure up to this. I mean, who possibly could love like this? Well, Jesus did, right? Like this was the posture of Christ. Like right at the time when we were at our worst, like in the middle of our rebellion against God, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. He does not insist on His own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but He rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. He endures all things. Jesus never ends. How has Jesus been patient with you? You're breathing, right? I mean, you're still alive. You still have breath in your lungs and days to serve Him. Is that deserved or undeserved? I mean, if if you were the parent of a kid like you, you would probably be wearing them out. Like you would be spanking him like dozens of times every day. God knows everything. You can't hide from him. And yet, he is patient with us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. When has Jesus shown kindness to you? Well, for some of you, you're sitting next to the kindness he's shown you. That wife, that husband, those kids. Like he has shown you kindness in countless ways. You see a sunset, that's the kindness of God. You drink in like a beautiful flower, that's the kindness of God. You hear the laughter of a child, your own child. Like when did Jesus not insist on his own way for your sake? Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead he emptied himself and he took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. He did not insist on his own way, but he gave himself for us. And finally, how has Jesus endured all things for you? You see, on the cross, Jesus was treated like you deserve to be treated. Like your sin deserves to be treated. So that for all eternity, you could be treated how only Jesus deserves to be treated. Like that's the message of the gospel. In fact, that's the message of this table of communion. Like we come to a table of communion Every Sunday as a reminder, you want to know what love is? Do you want me to show you? It's right here. The body of Jesus broken for you. The blood of Jesus spilled for you. Let's pray.
Oh, Jesus, thank you that the display of your character, the display of your love, the display of your glory, the display of your holiness were all seen in one place on the cross as the one and only unique Son of God hung between heaven and hell between earth and eternity and bore the sins of people just like me, just like those in this room, dying in the place of sinners. Greater has greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. We pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's stand together. As the band plays this opening instrumental, come to the table, get your elements, take them back to your seat, and we'll take it together in a moment. Why don't you take a moment and just thank God for the display of His love. of the Lord, a body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Him. I've noticed something in just a terminology shift within the church over the last few years. The replacement of the word sin term brokenness, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing, but it does kind of lessen the reality on my part. Guys, I'm not simply broken. I was born an enemy of God. Sin is not simply a mistake. It's something I did. It's something I am. Like I flipped God off. I could care less about him. I was an enemy of God, and he brought me close. I was a stranger, and he brought me in. That's made possible, only possible, by the blood of Jesus poured out for sinners like us. Do this in remembrance of him. reminds me of this passage from Romans 5 when we were utterly helpless Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person though someone might perhaps be willing to die 
for a person who is especially good, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right with God by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. Guys, that's the message of the gospel, and that's the display of love. If that message is new to you, or you want to know how you can acquire it, how you can know for sure that your sins are forgiven and that you have a home in heaven, we'll have some of our leaders down front. We'd love to talk to you about that. Love to pray with you this morning if you have any needs. God bless you, church. I hope you have a wonderful week. Goodbye.